This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode, but now on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I'm joined today, as always, by my co-host, my debonair co-host, ah. Mr. Mark Yusko. And I'm throwing you the debonair adjective because even though you got in at 3 a.m. last night, oh. you're looking great. No, you are, you are a good great. man. You are a good man or you need stronger glasses. I feel literally this like this week, uh, my senior year of, of college, I was walking across campus uh, and my girlfriend's roommate said, man, you look like death warmed over, just not warmed over. <laughs> I was like, wow, thank you. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I should do the plan B today. I should kind of mm. do, you know, the video list, but uh, mm. we're, we're going to go with it. And, uh, but I'm going to do the sock reveal. Probably not going to fall off my chair today, but I, I have the red pants because there's blood in the streets and I have the rest in peace Bitcoin uh, because everybody is back to Bitcoin's dead. And, uh, you know, I guess they could be right this time. No, they're not right. Um, they're not right. They're not right. No, it's just, it's just so stupid. It's, it's, well, we'll talk about it, but there, there is blood running in the streets and, mm -hmm. and it, it, it's, it's ugly out there. Uh, the reason I got in at 3 a.m., I was in Dallas for a, a wealth management conference and, and people were really down. I mean, they were really down. And then when I got there and talked about digital assets and Bitcoin, they're like, stop. Our, our, our other portfolios are doing <laughs> like nothing. I don't even want to hear about other stuff. That's so, so funny. Yeah, I... Uh I mean, yeah, I mean, we're talking about Bitcoin, obviously, but it's not localized to Bitcoin whatsoever. I mean, it did feel like the, you know, a plug got like, and, uh, you know, Bitcoin fell like 9% or something in the last 24 hours. We're recording this obviously yeah. on Friday the 6th, but, uh, you know, it's basically just nuclear fallout after the FOMC. Um, so I've actually got uh, a fun chart here. I mean, fun. I mean, you'll see. <laughs> fun, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Fun it depends how you define fun. Adjective. If you yeah, like yeah, torturing yeah. small animals, then then fun. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right, so here's a here's a fun little stat for you. This got pulled uh, by our, our producer Will. Shout out, Will. Uh, this is year-to-date performance of ten-year Treasuries up to April. This is not the worst start uh, for ten-year for the ten-year Treasuries in the last five years or ten years. It is the worst start going back to 1787. 1787. Love. love. Yeah. I love that you pulled this because somebody tweeted out last, last night. I noticed that it was the worst start. In history, obviously, they just don't know history. And you, being a history aficionado, uh, have have upped them. And this is so awesome. And oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. Look at this. I mean, yeah. just, you know, just to summarize, right, there was obviously the FOMC meeting this week. Uh, you know, it, initially, it looked like there was kind of a, a reaction in the wrong direction, right? So Powell kind of came out, he said a whole bunch of different stuff. But, but the big thing that it looked like markets were taking away was that they were not considering a 75 basis point uh, hike, right? And markets reacted extremely positively to that. You know, I think the NASDAQ finished up like 3% uh, that day, you know, crypto, uh, you know, had a very similar result. And then the next day, Thursday, just absolute bloodbath, right? So yep. the NASDAQ closed down something like 5%. You know, the S&P did something similar and Bitcoin puked. I mean, it's down, I think 10% or something in the last 24 hours. So People really seem to reverse. I, I was talking to a friend of mine, Ash Bennington at, at Real Vision, and he, he kind of made this joke that I liked, which was basically like, uh, you know, everyone kind of celebrated like, hey, all right, we're not getting our 75 basis point hike. But then everyone went out at night and was like, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> Is this really that good of news? No. <laughs> well, and, and, and what was what was ridiculous about it was they're like, well, you know, 50 plus 50 plus 50 is, is not the same as 75 and 75. So it's like, what? And I, I had the same reaction. And again, yeah. you know, he's like, well, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna bring this in for a, a soft-ish landing. I'm like, okay-ish, <laughs> define-ish. Like, is that a crash you can walk away from? <laughs> is that a crash you have to be hospitalized for? I mean, and look, if, if anyone has looked at any economic data, like not even a lot of economic, just any economic data, we're about to have arguably one of the biggest slowdowns in history economically. I mean, and, and if you've seen the picture 
of the ships in the harbors off China. I it's this is intentional. I mean, this is definitely intentional. And I I'm 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 hopeful that we have enough resilience in our supply chains, particularly food supply chains, that this doesn't get like dust bowl great depression. But I'm I'm not certain of that. And that's the first time I've actually said that out loud, but I am not certain that that things couldn't get like ugly, ugly. And I don't want that. I'm not wishing for that. I I really don't want that as a, you know, as a person, as a human, as a father, as a grandfather, as a friend. I I, I really don't want that. But man, I that picture spooked me. It spooked mm. me. Yeah. I, and, you know, just to, to directly outline the uniquely difficult position that central banks are in right now, what we're looking at here is, you know, effective federal funds rate. And basically, whenever there's a yield curve inversion, which is what we are moving towards right now, right? I mean, it briefly happened, but, yeah. uh, you know, the, the Fed immediately after begins cutting rates, right? And, you know, just to outline very directly what you and I have been talking about, I feel like for the last six months or so, yeah. is the Fed is, what's challenging about the Fed's position right now is that we are undeniably going into an economic slowdown, right? We talked last week about the contraction of GDP, 1.4%, you know, uh, the the ISM and some of the, the forward leading economic indicators coming out of China look ugly, right? They're shutting things down still from COVID, you're right, all these ships out there, it doesn't matter if it's doesn't even matter the reason, right? It's it's just happening. Exactly. Right? So that, that, that's these, the great point. It doesn't right? matter why at this point. Exactly. So so the Fed has and and we've got an eight point five percent CPI handle. So I mean, what do you do? And and interest rates are at record lows. Like, what do you do in this situation? Yeah. I, the problem is you're supposed to learn from history. And again, it's one of the things I love about doing this with you is is you have this great perspective on history and you always bring that historical lens. We know what happens when you raise interest rates from zero. It, mm. in, now, it only happened one other time, but it was in 1937. And, and we know precisely what happens. And if you go back, and this, this is why, you know, Lynn Alden talks about this. Everyone's like, oh, it's the 70s. I'm like, guys, it's, there's, there's just nothing about the 70s that's similar, uh, except the CPI number. You could find a number in the 70s that was 8.5, uh, but nothing else is similar. And But you go back to 1937, and you look at debt. You look at, we were doing QE for the first time. You would look at interest rates were, were taken down to zero to try to stimulate the economy after the crash. And we the Fed increased rates back then only 25 basis points. For, forget the 75. Because the thing, the Fed hasn't raised rates like 5%. They've raised rates 75 basis points. And 50 of those came in the last few days. So it hasn't been this massive tightening in terms of rates, but the financial conditions tightening that's happened in the marketplace from treasury markets and and uh, equity decimation has just been brutal. And in 1937, the Fed's actions turned a garden variety recession into the Great Depression. Up until our entry into the war, it was ugly. Like the pictures are ugly. And if you've read Steinbeck, it's ugly. Mm -hmm. And and yes, there were weather issues and the Dust Bowl. And, but, you know, we got, we have food problems and we're seeing it already. And again, I don't want to be fatalist about this, but I do want people to at least acknowledge that there's an additional risk factor, which is just-in-time inventory. And we learned a little bit of that lesson during lockdown. Right when medicine, like oh wait, that comes from China, really? That 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 medicine isn't like ten minutes away. It's you know two days or two weeks away on a boat. Um, so I think we have to be careful, very careful. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you. I um, you know, I was I was listening to the I I don't know if you've been listening to the All In podcast with uh, 
Chamath and David Sachs. It's, it's a good. It's a I good need thing. to do that. I, I, I sent it to myself. Um, yeah. And I meant to. I meant to. I was going to listen. Actually, it's funny you say that. I was actually going to listen to it on the airplane. But then we didn't leave until, you know, 10 o'clock. And I was like, I'm going to try to get some sleep. And that was a disaster. And anyway, so I will recover this weekend. Yeah, I, you know, they, I mean, they bring a pretty interesting perspective, right? They've been talking a lot about macro recently and they, you know, but they're, they're private market investors for the most, I mean, Chamat does a lot of public market stuff with the SPACs, but, um, you know, one, one wonder that I have, right? Uh, you know, when I'm looking at everything that's going on with the Fed in, in general mm-hmm. is I want, like, if you, especially if you look at just what's going on outside of crypto and some of these tech stocks, right? I mean, the charts are like, there's some of the ugliest chart. I'm not a chart guy, but there's some of the ugliest charts I've ever seen. And it's crazy. It's like, you can look at March of 2020 when the balloon got blown up and now it's right back down. I mean, and, and, and everyone, maybe what's different about it this time is everyone is in the public conscious is extremely aware of the impact that the Federal Reserve has had on this period of time, right? So now it's like that that whole stimulus, the record stimulus lasted about 18 months. Yeah. All of the effects of that are down. And now we're about to feel the hangover. And the Fed is very much in the crosshair. So I'm, you know, I'm wondering if the Fed always kind of you know, steps into, I mean, at least, you know, for the last 50 or so, they step into markets and they kind of have this this impact on the business cycle, but I, I, it could get pretty ugly politically for them because I think a lot of people, if we do have some kind of, we're looking at a pretty massive drawdown already, but if, you know, people could be looking to point a finger and I feel like the Fed is going to be right in the crosshairs of that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you guys will be able to see this. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So that is every chart in tech. This is the classic bubble chart. And, you know, you go from this euphoria phase and then then you have the first drop and then you have the return to normal. And everybody's like, oh, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And then the bottom falls out and and everything that you thought you had goes away. And and that is, you know, Peloton and Shopify. and, And here's the problem. You look at some of these things. Yes, they're down 75, 85, 90%. They're still not cheap. They could fall another 75% mm-hmm. from here. And you know, you know, I've talked about this, right? The 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 rule of, of 95, right? What's the difference between down 90 and down 95? You lost half your money. And so it's oh, it's only 5%. No, no, no. That's half of what you got left. And so there's well, and, and I think we we did. I think I picked on these guys last week, but you know, Carvana. That equity literally could be worth zero. Mm. They they signed a debt deal that basically, you know, gives Apollo the you know the keys. Haha, pun intended. If uh, they go bankrupt, and if they go bankrupt, then your equity. Well, unless you're Bill Ackman and you get Jamie Dimon to let you have your equity in the real estate company that he had a big piece of, it filed bankruptcy and the common somehow didn't get canceled and it became the best performing stock over the next five years. I'm like, wait, how, how does that? Work? No, no. But if you have special friends, things things happen. Um, I don't have those special friends. <laughs> I uh there there's a guy, you know, your your the rule of 95 it made me think of this there's a Twitter thread from a guy named Bill Gurley. Right? Oh, he's kind of one of the, the all-time best, greats. Uh, best. He's it, it's a short thread so I'll just read it to you here. So he's that an entire generation of entrepreneurs and tech investors built their entire perspectives on valuation during the second half of a 13-year amazing bull market run. The unlearning process could be painful, surprising and unsettling to many. Some thoughts. This is exactly what you said. Previous all-time highs are completely irrelevant. It's not cheap because it's down 70%. Forget those prices happened. Valuation multiples are always a hack proxy, dangerous to use. If you insist, 10x should be considered amazing and an upper limit over that is silly. You may be shocked to learn that people want to value your company on free cash flows and earnings. What a thought. Facebook trades at 14 times gap EPS and it's growing 23%. What earnings multiple are you assuming? Revenue and earnings quality matter. I mean, these are like such basic things, right? But they're things that we seem to have forgotten. No, they were gone. The- and, and every generation forgets them. And yeah. the, the interesting thing about investing 
is you don't get to learn from other people's mistakes. And it's really weird, right? You, you should be able to go back and, and read books about 2000 and look at look 10,000 companies were formed by venture capitalists, you know, Bill and others. And, and Bill is one of the greatest. I mean, we, we were lucky. We, we met the benchmark guys in benchmark one, all five of them, right? When they were children. I mean, they weren't children, but they look like children. All tall, very tall children. But they, they, they came to South Bend, Indiana in the middle winter with no coats. That was funny. With no coats huh. from California. And said they're going to raise this, this $85 million fund because that was the right number, $17 million per partner. And only six board seats per partner, you know, none of this 20 board seats and nonsense. And make a long story short, that fund was up until a couple of years ago, the best performing venture fund in history. A 96X fund was the eBay fund. They turned 85 million at 8.6 billion. Um, so pretty good deal. But, you know, and Bill has been just a, a constant voice of reason. He wrote a great piece about SPACs and why SPACs would become the preferred method for high growth innovative companies to go public. But uh, 10,000 companies were formed from 1995 to 2000. There are not 10,000 good management teams. There aren't. I mean, to zero, like gone. Okay. Now that left 3,000 to go public or get acquired. And, and some today are some of the great companies of all time. Uh, maybe not of all time, but some really good companies like Splunk and others. Um, actually, Splunk was formed later. Splunk actually came in 2001 in the middle of the crisis. But, but there are a bunch of companies that survived. But this idea that Every company is great and every company should be valued on eyeballs and TAM. I hate TAM. This whole idea, what's my total addressable market? It doesn't matter. If, if no one cares about you and no one buys your product, I don't care how big your market is. So, and, and in 2001, there's a great article, I've tweeted this out before. In 2001, there's a great article saying, you know, the novel concept or quaint concept of profits is back in vogue. <laughs> what are you talking about? Mm. Profits is the whole purpose of having a business. And the idea of, uh, you know, oh, we'll lose money on every item, but we'll make it up on volume. Okay, that doesn't work. Or, oh, we're just going to keep growing our market uh, size. It's, it's okay to lose money. Now, Amazon made that work. Facebook made it work. Because then they could figure out a way to monetize. That doesn't work for every business model. There are a couple of business models. It's painful right now. And, it, and, and I'll tell you where it's, where it's going to be really painful is venture. Um, because the public markets have already corrected. The venture markets haven't corrected no. yet. And we're starting to have some painful conversations with founders about, you know, what they thought their value, you know, their, it's like, I remember one of my guys saying, he was talking to this, this guy, he's like, you know, a, 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 uh, I call it a market, market average, a market, what a, uh, I can't remember. I can't remember the phrase he used. Basically he was saying, you know, the, the common multiple of 30 times sales. Like, no, there's nothing common about 30 times sales and people who paid 30 times sales, most of them will lose all their money, but, um, you know, and look, Zoom got to 120 times sales and, you know, I, I shouldn't say anything bad about my son's company, but Snowflake got to 200 <laughs> times sales, 200 times sales. Yeah. Yeah. 200. I mean, uh, there's no math formula. You know, I, funny, I was down in Dallas for this thing and, and today, starting today, tomorrow and, and Sunday, there's a market disruptors conference with Mark Moss and, you know, yeah. Greg Foss and- and James Lavish, I had drinks with James last night and a bunch of people were coming. I missed it because I, I had to get back to help my parents move. Um, and, oh, and, and Greg is just great about this, right? Learn math. Math. Math is really, really important. And, and he's on the bond thing. And the reason bonds are getting crushed is, is math. And if interest rates do actually rise, then these multiples are going to get crushed. And that's math. And then if you can't earn any money with your business model, that's math too. So, mm. and it's not calculated. You know, he's funny. He's like, it's 11th grade math. 
you don't need calculus. It's just 11th grade, you know, addition, subtraction, algebra, um, pretty simple stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes I don't So like going back to like, let's put ourselves in the position of Jerome Powell here, let's say global central banks in general. And let's, let's, let's just ask ourselves, what is an acceptable outcome from the current situation? Because we're talking a lot about uh, valuations in the stock yep. market, public yep. and private, but we know that the Fed is going to be watching credit markets, right? Yep. Short-term funding markets, you know, especially. So I guess my question, you know, I saw this, this tweet, uh, you know, the other day. So this was, this is a pretty interesting statistic. There have been two days in the past 25 years when the S&P 500 futures were down 3% and 10-year treasury futures were down 1%. October 9th, 2008 and March 18th, 2020. Someone is blowing up. This is forced liquidation. Correct. So, you know, the, the question, the question is right until the Fed is going to keep doing this until something breaks, right? And everything moves down precipitously in this same direction all at the same time. The question is, when is that going to happen? And then what can they do in that situation? I'm not sure they can throw a liquidity bazooka at it the same way they did uh, no. in those situations. Well, no, okay. So, so that's all of that analysis is perfect, except the last part, it, they collectively, right? Not just the mm -hmm. Fed, but, but the other central banks have up to this point always been able to surprise us. I know. Right? Yeah, they have. You know, because yeah. we've, we've, we've said, ah, there's no way at 80% of GDP on the balance sheet of, you know, the Bank of Japan, there's no way they can go higher. They went higher. There's no yep. way Japan could get to debt to GDP of over 200. It went mm -hmm. higher, 226. And so, so the ability for, because it, it's, the ability for the central banks to to punch the button, because it's not even like they have to go crank out the money, right? They literally just push a button and more ones and zeros appear in some some ledger. Uh, the 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 different the challenge is that there has to be a willing suspension of disbelief by market participants. Right? We all have to ignore the man behind the curtain and believe that somehow all of this can get reconciled and settled when the reality is that's not possible. And so as long as we all believe it, and as long as we keep exchanging those, those certificates, because it's not really paper anymore, it's just electronic. As long as we keep exchanging for goods and services, it all works okay. And so your point is, what do they do? Well, at some point, the breakage will be so big that political pressures usually will force the hand to expand the balance sheet. And you know, the PBOC already started, right? The PBOC cut their balance sheet in 2021, which is why Chinese equities just got myrtleized. They're now expanding the balance sheet again. And Chinese stocks have held up better than the rest. I mean, they've still gotten hurt, but most of the hurt was last year when liquidity was. So, uh, and the ECB is still cranking out, although that's not really helping their markets. So at some point, I think they're just going to crank the printing press back up. And the relief rally when that happens will be epic. You know, you thought, mm. you know, the other day was, was big, you know, 3%. No, this would be you know, a big relief rally, a big short squeeze. Because the shorts had basically gotten buried asunder, you know, six months ago. Uh, they were pretty much gone. I mean, there was no, no shorting. People are back in the short side. They've made some money. Um, it's the long side that's getting just killed. I mean, you know, all the articles have come out now and everybody's seen some of the, you know, masters of the universe get their comeuppance, uh, which does happen. Um, but I, I, I'm with you, Michael. I I think this, I don't like the term this time is different, right? I mean, Sir John was right. It's it's not. But, but there is something that feels 
it, it feels 1937-ish to me. And I've been saying this for a while. It feels 1937-ish to me. It feels like they've made a mistake. It feels like we're going to have a reset, right? A great reset. And that means, unfortunately, a lot of pain, a lot of bankruptcies, a lot of, uh, here, uh, you know, this is a total non sequitur, but here's an interesting one. So there's a, I don't think we've talked about this. There's a firm that we've worked with over the years called JB Investments. And they're amazing. They've been around 20 something years. There is a fund like every three years. And here's what they do. They look for an industry where there's been supply disruption through bankruptcy. They've only had seven funds in 20 something years and they've done it twice in the airlines, once in auto parts, once in Met Coal, once in some other industrial industry and then most recently in energy. And you know, we invested with them two years ago in energy when never thought energy was dead and they made five times their money and they just sold uh, last quarter and now they're going to wait. And I was talking with this friend of mine in Dallas yesterday and he said, you know, I think the next one like this, we're going to be massive bankruptcies. We've already seen a bunch of accidents in food processing plants is food. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, wait a second. Jesus, wait a second. That's, that's dark. If food companies start going bankrupt and yeah. And so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to talk to the JB guys about this, but that would, that, again, that was 1937. There, you know, some of the great franchise businesses went bust and, you know, the robber barons came in again and scooped them all up, just like they did after the Great Depression. You know, some of the great fortunes in this country were created by stealing the assets at, at the trough, right? Mm. Let's let's talk about some things. So we've we've kind of covered a couple of things that are unsustainable, right? We talked about valuations in the stock market, right? These like thirty times revenue multiples you're getting in private markets. So I didn't know Snowflake was at two hundred times at the peak, at the peak, and it was only for like five minutes, but still, it did yeah. hit two hundred times revenues. Yeah, here's another one that's unsustainable: is debt to GDP. Everyone <laughs> has just kind of forgotten that that, that like or pretended that, that that it doesn't matter because and again this is like my non I so I like I don't have a background in finance right I've been in financial media now for a long time but it's just never made sense to me and what people say is well well you know when interest rates are really low you can pay the debt servicing costs and it doesn't matter and you can essentially take on infinite debt you know like explain down to me as if I'm like missing something yeah and I, I'm like. Yeah, for a time, but exactly. come on, just let's just think first principles. That's unsustainable. So actually, in a weird way, maybe the the best outcome for global central banks in general is that thing everyone's been saying for a while is that some amount, 8.5% inflation, no, too high, but maybe some sustained inflation above whatever the 10-year yield is right. so that bondholders right. just get punished for a period of time. And then if you, you know, if you don't make money in bonds and you got to put it somewhere it goes into stocks and like that is, it will be rough and volatile, but maybe that is the quote unquote long-term soft landing that the that the Fed and the central banks are hoping for here. Again, for, for a non-financial guy, you're, you're, you're pretty good. So, so think about, uh, you just described uh, financial repression 2.0, mm -hmm. okay? So financial repression 1.0 was we cut, interest rates over and over and over and over. And we just, we just push people out of cash and they have to go somewhere. So they actually go into longer duration bonds. They go into high yield bonds and a bunch go into high yielding equities and, and even some go into speculative equities. Um, now you're at a place where, you know, cash is, is totally trash. I mean, you know, losing 7% in real terms or whatever, 8% in real terms. So total trash. And even bonds now are total trash. So if, if now the financial repression 2.0 is, well, geez, I don't even want people in bonds. I need them all in inequities. But the problem is I, 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 I don't think the planners who would have gone down that path, as you describe, 
would have wanted a 70% off sale. Uh, I don't think they would want, although maybe because, you know, actually the more I think about this, that makes a lot of sense. Because what you need is then for the money that gets invested to then have the ability to ramp uh, back up. Because at the end of the day, the challenge for all of the Western civilizations is massive entitlements, not enough capital, and not enough workers. So the taxing base, you know, when they set up Social Security, there were 17 workers for every retiree back in the 30s. You know, when I reach retirement age, which means I won't get to retire, there'll be mm -hmm. two. And that's not enough. And so you're going to have to have people's houses appreciate rapidly, which is happening, right? We've created this massive bubble in housing. Uh, although the problem is most people can't unlock their equity. Although I met a really interesting company that I actually might invest in. It's a great idea. Using blockchain and tokens to unlock homeowner equity, not through the traditional method where you have to get a home equity line of credit and you actually have to make a payment. But if you have a bunch of equity, but you don't have any more income, in fact, your income is going down because food prices and stuff is going up, you can't afford a HELOC. But if you could take 40% of your equity and sell it to somebody with a token, ooh, that's really cool. And, and let's say it had a, a, a feature like a ticket where if somebody then resold it, you got a little piece of it back. That would be really cool. So I, I think that could work. But then the 401k problem, right? If your 401k just turned into a 201k, or maybe it's, maybe it's only a 301k right now. It's on its way to a 201k. But if your 401k is now a 301k, uh, we got to get it back to a 5 or a 601k because people don't have enough money in it to actually retire. And there's only so many you know, Walmart greeters there can be as you walk in. I guess there could be eight, you know, when you walk in. Um, but then Walmart's margins would go down. This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon, the world's leading blockchain infrastructure platform. Blockdaemon's mission is simple. Make spinning up a node so easy a five-year-old could do it and so secure that any chief compliance officer in the world could sleep easy at night. In plain English, Blockdaemon allows anyone, whether you're a crypto native fund, a financial institution, a DeFi protocol, whatever, to participate in crypto more safely. For some, that can mean participating in governance. It could mean gathering real-time and accurate data. It could mean generating yield through staking. Whatever it is, when it comes to crypto, infrastructure is edge, and there's simply no better edge offered than the one from Blockdaemon. Blockdaemon supports a range of services on over 50 protocols, and that's a growing list. They have multiple layers of risk mitigation that include regional and data center diversity, 24-7 human and automated monitoring, a full-service team of engineers to avoid technical difficulties, and things like slashing insurance. In other words, they literally make it foolproof. If your organization relies on real-time, accurate data that comes from blockchains, please, please, please click the link at the bottom of this episode and go check them out. Again, it's important. Got to click the link at the bottom. Otherwise, I won't get my credit. They would. I, here, then here's the last, you know, talking about Walmart, Walmart's margins. I'm going to connect these, these dots here. But the last thing that feels unsustainable to me is the wealth gap. Like all those things, stock market valuations, debt to GDP. But the real thing that feels absolutely unsustainable is the gap in wealth in general. And listen to what you just said. The big challenge for Western civilizations is a shortage of labor. Could it, could it just be like, so then the premium on labor is going to increase over the, and that's probably a good thing. Capital, like financial assets probably should be worth less relative to labor. Yep. Let me ask you another, like, yep. here's, here's a hypothetical. Yep. <laughs> Let's look at something like McDonald's or Walmart, right? So what the arbitrage that companies have been playing on the global stage for the last 30 or 40 years in this glo like globalization era is I don't want to use my local labor pool, which is a, you know, at whatever cost basis, I want to go into this other jurisdiction, use a cheaper labor pool, right? So what that does is there's the, like, that's a fixed part of like, let's say McDonald's costs, right? Or not the same McDonald's because they've got employee like Walmart's costs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so what? So, so people in the U.S., earn less wage and Walmart's profit margins goes up 
X yep. percent. Yep. Doesn't that just have to reverse? Also, shouldn't it reverse? Like at the end of the day, who cares, man? Who like at, uh, seriously at a really high level? Do what? What good? What is the societal benefit of people earning a living wage versus five points in gross margin for Walmart? I would argue we, we should probably just start paying people more. You know, Look, like, you know, perfect analysis, absolutely spot on as what should happen. Problem. It's antithetical to the dictator playbook. We have entered the dictator playbook over the last few years. And it, it, there's, there's no stopping it. And look, the, the, the powers that be in these civilizations, in these, in these you know, uh, liberal democracies, have converted capitalism to cronyism. They've converted democracy into kleptocracy. And they, by pushing all their cronies to the tippy top of the spear, the, the, the plan then is to impoverish those below, not raise them up. It's literally to impoverish them by destroying everything around them, especially through currency devaluation, and then stay in power because... I always I would ask this question, like, well, if, if the bad people got in power, just vote them out. It, it's a democracy. Oh, no, 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 no. Au contraire. The bad guys then, by guys and gals like Christina in Argentina, then give free stuff. Like, mm. what did Biden just do? He said, hey, if I forgive your debt, your student loans, will you vote for me? I know young people don't like me, but would you vote for me? And first it's student loans, then it's going to be, um, I don't know, then maybe they'll bring back, you know, credit card interest or, or payday loan interest or, uh, oh, I'll exempt, I'll exempt some of your gains on your crypto. How about that? Would you like me if I did that? And you're going to see all kinds of graft being given to the floor to keep the floor from rising up, I think. And, and that, it saddens me. I don't like to say it. I don't like to talk about it. I wish your perfect analysis would happen. And, but the only way that would happen is actually there's a way if we got a young person in charge. Yeah. I, I do. I do think the age thing, I, well, one thing I would say is I, I think also like this, I mean, one thing that people are, are just starting to talk about, but I think will be bigger and bigger and bigger going forward into the future is uh, a rising labor movement in the United States. Uh, sure. Just look, this is like, I'm not going to call my shot here because I think this will be, this is like a five to 10 year type thing. I listened to this interview. There's a great, there's an episode on, on pivot. Um, and I, I listened to this this woman, Kim Kelly, she's the author of Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor Unions. Mm -hmm. And I kind of went in being like, I'm not going to like what this person is saying, but I still listen to stuff. I still listen to that awesome. kind of stuff because I like to see what people are are saying and narratives. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she's, she's talking she's very passionately about kind of the kind of what we're talking about, right? The, the labor class versus the, the ruling elite sort of class. Mm -hmm. And the one thing, you know, she was saying some stuff that I thought was kind of radical, but I was like, you know, I had this knee jerk reaction where I was like, I don't really like what she's saying. But then I was like, but I kind of actually agree with that. As I kind of agreed with some of it. And the, way she, the way she framed it, some, some of, there was an analogy to crypto that uh, really resonated with me. Because, you know, the, one of the guys on the uh, podcast, this guy, Scott Galloway, he's like an older, mm -hmm. you know, successful kind of capitalist guy. And he's like, look, I like the messages that you're saying, but how could we essentially water this down so that it sounds good to a capitalist. She's like, absolutely not. We're not watering it down. This is a fight. And, oh, and you know, you know no. what? We're not watering this down. No, 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 no. And you know what? It reminded me of crypto a little bit because, you know, so many times like, hey, I agree with this, but like, how could we say this so that it will be attractive to a Wall Street crowd? You know, and I used to think about that too. And now, mm -hmm. now like four years later, I'm like, I don't care if it's attractive to that. Well, you know, I, that, that was one of the things, Michael, that, that really kind of, kind of bugged me was mm -hmm. when the the Bitcoin world and the, and the crypto world kind of backed off a little bit on the, 
well, you know, well, you, you, you definitely can't use Bitcoin to get around sanctions. Like, horse shit, you can't. Of course you can. And why would you do? Well, I don't want to I don't want to get them mad at me, you know, as a hold as a hodler. So I'm just going to say that. Like, no, don't back down from your principles. And and I love that. I love this. I'm going to listen to this podcast because I, I think, look, it doesn't have to be Jimmy Hoffa and, you know, th- that kind of labor union stuff. Um, but but there's there is collective activity or collective action is a very powerful thing. Right. And and with me, social media, you, you can make it faster and, and, and more viral and, and more powerful. Uh, I think that. The, the one challenge as I sit here and think about your, your idea is <clears throat> what, what is that labor, right? I mean, is it truly the, the labor of, you know, the gas station attendants and the, the Walmart workers and the supply chain and the truck drivers? Or is it the creative class that is, is going to, you know, build the, the, the new infrastructure for, you know, the new financial system and, and all of the, the, the new that's coming. And, and that's, a, that's an interesting question um, because it's kind of like, again, I was having this conversation, of course, you're in Texas, you had to have this conversation that, you know, everybody wants oil to go away. Everybody wants oil to go away, right? We all want this green future and no more decarbonization and, you know, like, okay, Look at the things that you use every day. How many of them contain or were manufactured by or brought to you by petroleum products? It's a big thing. And there's this ad, and I wish I could remember which company did it. It was awesome. And it was an oil company. And it showed a guy and a gal getting ready for a date. And like every five seconds, something made of petroleum would disappear. Like literally, she'd be putting on her lipstick and it would disappear out of her hand. And he went out to his car to get in the car and the tires disappeared. And then they're sitting at the table and the food disappeared. And I'm like, you know what? That's pretty cool. Because until we come up with, through innovation and uh, something to replace it, let's just not pretend that that I can, you know, do away with all this stuff Uh just like um, the labor force, right? I mean, we need truck drivers and we need stockers on sh- you know for shelves and you know until until all of us sit on that levitating chair like in Wally and people just bring us stuff. Mm-hmm. Someone's still gonna have to bring us the stuff, I guess. I guess drones yeah. could bring us. Look, I mean, I, I kind of feel like one idea that I think people have known for a while is broken, but is probably going to come out in stark relief over the course of the next five years, is this idea that people need to work like three minimum wage jobs to support their mm-hmm. livelihood. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, one of two things needs to happen. Either either automate those jobs away and then figure out another solution. And I understand how painful that will be for an economy. Do one of two things, pay those people more or automate those jobs away and then figure out what your labor force should be focusing on and doing. I don't know. One of those two things needs to happen because this like, you know, working at McDonald's and Walmart to like support yourself and and still not having a good life. That's just not going to work over a long, over a long period of time. Yeah. Well, and, and, and to that point, it, it is, it is basic supply and demand. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if there are too many untrained people, meaning untrained, meaning trained for higher level activities, computer programmers or, or engineers or architects or whatever it is. But for this many jobs, then wages will fall. Yeah. And, and that, that's just, that it's like teachers. You know, I, I think teachers, particularly like second grade teachers, because I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but do you know the number one reason why people go to prison? Mm-mm. The score on the second grade reading test. If you score right. below a certain number on the second grade reading test, you will go to prison because you fall behind, you're ostracized, you drop out, you go to prison. They, they determine where to build prisons in this country based on the scores 
on the second grade reading test. Is that true? I'd be really bummed if that is the case. It's absolutely true. And I, I got this directly from a prison warden. It changed my life. It's why you know, when I set up Morgan Creek, I set up Morgan Creek Foundation. We give 10% of our profits to early childhood education. It's my thing. So second grade teachers are really, and actually preschool teachers are even more important to me because that's when you teach kids to read. And teaching kids to read is not really that hard. Tutoring one child, great, awesome. But figuring out how to motivate or, or you know, take some of those displaced workers and create a better process for teaching kids to read would be amazing. And it's stuck with me all these years that, that this is something that, again, takes leadership. It takes people to, to aspire to that and to not want to just profit maximize at whatever corporation they have become a cog in. Um, and there are lots of people doing this, right? There, there's this amazing kid. He was a Robertson scholar. Julian uh, has a program here at UNC. And he created uh, uh, a program that it's not, it's not second grade reading, but it's, it's basically uh, high school uh, edu- like tutoring to help people get through high school and get into college called Student U. And it's amazing. And he's mm-hmm. changing the world. And not everybody has to go do that, but we should all support those people and we should all aspire to be like those people. And then we should all try to think of ways that we can use our brains to help facilitate those types of projects. But anyway, commercial yeah. break for early childhood education. I don't want to overly fit this framework here, you know, but I, you know, I've talked to Neil Howe and recently, and I like his framework, honestly, for the fourth turning. And I know that's more of a, you know, a social, but I mean, just look at what we're talking about here. Uh, you, you know, the institutions that have served us thus far are, look, it's painful when they crumble, right? That's because that's a lot of what society is based on. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think we're, I think we're reaching logical limits across a whole bunch of different areas. Um, you know, we're talking about just, uh, you know, do you feel represented by your bank, by your government, the two political parties that exist, <laughs> uh, right? Are you, do you, is education serving you, right? Um, you know, is, uh, is the media, do you feel like you're getting good information from the media? And all, you know, if the answer to all of these things is no, then, then ultimately that's okay, but we need, we need to figure out a, a solution. And those solutions, you know, the, the optimist in me, historically, those solutions get figured out. And, and just like in a company too, if you've ever had to, one lesson that I've actually learned about, uh, you know, just operating a company is that it's very tempting when you know something is wrong to paper over the solution. It's really tempting uh, because it's a huge pain in the butt. You know, you know when you finally shine a light on the problem that uh, that it that it will be messy and take extra hours. And but sunlight is the best disinfectant. And the, you know, this lesson that I learned time and time again is just call the problem out. Take your medicine and then yeah. you'll be really happy that you did in like three to six months. I know, look, a hundred percent. And I, I think we may have talked about this, but back to, to labor, tying labor into this. Boone Pickens, you know, famous oil guy. T Boone. T Boone. I mean, just it's amazing, right? I mean, at 78 years old, there's this great video of him. Uh, well, two videos. One, there's a video of him racing Obama up a hill and he wins. Okay. And he's 20 years older. Uh, the other one is he's at a football game at OSU with his alma mater and the cheerleaders are carrying this, this push-up platform and he's on it at 78 years old doing push-ups. I'm like, that dude is, he's the man. So anyway, he was on John Stewart show years ago and, and John said, you know, sir, I have, you know, such incredible respect for you and, and you have this reputation of, of, of being tough yet mm-hmm. beloved and, you know, you have this reputation of, 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 of firing a lot of people. And um, I just, I'm just curious, you know, how do you know? He says, the first time it enters my mind. I'm like, oh my God. And how many times, whether it's a person or a problem, or it enters your mind and you're like, oh, no, 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 I, I can deal with that. It, I'll tolerate that. It, it's okay. It's okay. It's not okay. He said, just, just do it. And, and then, and in the end, you know, t gave a couple of life lessons and, and John Stewart is great. He says, sir, I don't know where you're going after this show, but I am following you. 
I am following you out of this building. I am following you anywhere. You, I'm like, yes. So, and that's what we need. And I watched this guy talk, um, strategic investment conference that John Malden puts on. So, uh, I did one of the opening sessions and, and I have a big session on, on Monday, my birthday. So they gave me my birthday day. And, uh, so there was this political strategist and he said, for the first time ever, which is pretty, it's a long time, first time ever, his polling suggests that an independent third party candidate could actually win. And the highest ever was Perot, I guess got 11%. He said, this time a third party, but it would have to be the right candidate. And, and that, and it, it has to be a charismatic, I think it has to be a young person. I mean, maybe not super young, but I, I, I think younger is better. Um, but it, it just, I, I think it could happen. And I think if, if we collectively came together, the people in the middle, I, I just think it could happen. And, and I would love to see that, that groundswell movement happen. The political parties are changing. They, they, you know, uh, who's the geopolitical, um, Peter Zeihan said this a little while ago. And, you know, he, he kind of called this, I was listening like three or four years ago, Trump broke American politics. He broke the Republican party. And he made this observation yeah. that we've talked about this on the show. Political yeah. parties tend to break and reform about every 80 to hundred years or something like that in the United States. And I, you know, just anecdotally, I am one data point. I feel so unrepresented by both political parties. It's almost like You're, I see them I'm doing one thing points. and I'm like, you know, yeah, I'm just like, but you know, it's crazy. So, you know, my, I don't know. I feel like whatever, you know, I just don't like whichever political party is in charge because they do these crazy things. And I'm like, you guys are the enemy. And then the other one gets in charge and they start doing these crazy things. I'm like, all right. And I just like, guys, come on. I well, just, cause we've yeah. talked about this. There are no parties anymore. There's in and out, mm -hmm. right? You're in, yeah. you do or say whatever it takes to stay in. And when you're out, you do or say whatever it takes to get in and they're all the same. And so, but, but the difference is they're the same with the same goal, which is to maximize their cabal at the top because we've gone to cronyism. And so what we need is a moderate, middle, actual person who, who cares. And, and part of the problem is those people don't want to endure the process. There are a lot of those people. I've I've met plenty of them, right? And and I I can envision half a dozen who I would think would be amazing, but they're like, are you kidding me? You know, raising the money and and then having to owe those people. That's the other problem. Cost you know so much money to get elected, and you have to owe people, and therefore once you get in, it's like I I, I my favorite is remember when the election was happening two years ago and they're like, oh my gosh, if, if the Democrats win, you know, oil and gas is just going to get obliterated, you know, the green and what's the best performing area in the last two years? Oil and gas. Like it's not even close this year. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a bloodbath everywhere else and energy is up a lot. Well, how did that happen? Well, Biden's like, what, they, they pay me a lot of money? Oh, I love them. I love those guys. Wait, but just as an example of how hard investing is, you want to know what the best performing currency is this year, year to date? Oh, God. Okay, wait. The best performing currency this year? It might actually be the second. It's the ruble. Oh, the God, I ruble. love that. I love that. that. Like, how hard is investing? I mean, that war, record awesome. sanctions, and yet the ruble is... I just I, like I actually love those little data points because it just reminds you how difficult life, life that is. That is awesome. Um, oh my gosh, yeah. that's awesome. Well, and here's uh, the thing: I actually had this conversation with somebody last night in 1998, uh, August 1998. Uh, Russia defaulted, and Russian assets just got obliterated. I mean, obliterated. And I happened to be uh, on my way to New York, and I met. Uh, George Rohr, who ran this Russian fund um, called New Century Advisors, in the 
<laughs> airline club, the American Airlines Club at LaGuardia, which was horrible back then, is still horrible now, even though the airport is, is much nicer, but it's still the club for some reason is still horrible. And he had a, a piece of graph paper, like literally the old blue lined graph paper where he was plotting the RTS and it was down 95%. He said, Mark, you have to buy this, right? Because it'll go back to where it was. That's a 20 bagger. I'm like, okay, fine. And I was poor. I was working at the university. I didn't have very much money at all. Um, but I did. I went out and I said, all right, find me Russian stock. And there was one listed Russian stock. It was an oil company called AO Tatneft. And at the time, oil was like 11 bucks. And ExxonMobil's barrels of oil were valued at like $9, okay, per bale of, that they had. AO Tatneft's were four cents. Like a barrel of oil is a barrel of oil, right? So why is one worth four cents and one worth, you know, $9? So I took $1,000 and put, no, I bought a thousand shares, not a thousand dollars, bought a thousand shares, which wasn't quite a thousand. I think it was a thousand dollars total. Anyway, I split it between my two kids and it went up 40 times. Which doesn't happen very often. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not bragging on me. I was just, this guy said, do this. I listened, which is the key. When someone's smart tells you to do something, you actually do it. That usually works out. Uh, not always, but usually. And but it was just like right now, I want to buy Spare Bank so badly. Spare Bank, largest bank in Russia, is not going away, but you can't buy it because they they shut it down. Yet the ruble has recovered. And I want to own Sparebank, and I want to own Yandex and a couple other tech companies. Because you're going to make 20, 30, 40 times your money uh, when they start trading again. Not not immediately, but but over time. So I should yeah. figure that out. The the last thing, I'll just say, um, you know, the real way this ripples out into the, into the let's say, private markets, right? And I, I know we got to wrap soon, um, is... You know, all these, the, the way demand planning works at a, at a company, right, is everyone says forecasts. I feel like forecasts should be replaced as targets. That is targets. <laughs> you, you, set your, you set your target and yeah. then you build reverse engineer from your target into what you can realistically do. Mm -hmm. So the danger, I, I think the way I've always seen the danger from what the Fed does when they pull and push demand, it makes it very difficult to forecast how real that demand is. Right. So if what and, and most demand is created by credit. So what the Fed is doing when they're sucking credit out of the market, they are if you are leading a business, read, they are sucking demand out of the market. So I would just be very cautious about, you know, super aggressive hiring plans and everything, because some of that demand that you think is there that feels like it is there is about to get sucked out. That's why market. inflation numbers are going to collapse because there is no demand pull. Right, there, and, and it's going to get worse. Yep. The economic contraction is going to be ugly, like mm -hmm. painfully ugly, and not just ugly for the people it's normally ugly for. It's going to be ugly for everybody. This is this is a, this is going to be a doozy, and that's such a boomer word. God, this is horrible. Doozy. <laughs> I think it's Did a good really? word. We don't have to abandon all words. Yeah. Doozy is yeah. a good word. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. but. Uh, yeah, um, I look. You're you're again exactly right that liquidity drives markets, and we've had the greatest contraction in liquidity in history. And it wasn't because the Fed did it; it was the market front running the Fed's jawboning, and they did their job for them. And that's why you know I think we're done raising rates. I don't think there may be more rate increases, and. Mm. I think the liquidity damage has been done and that demand destruction has been done. And, you know, I saw it, you know, the restaurant that I went to yesterday in Dallas was okay, but not like it was a few months ago. Uh, the flight was packed only because American canceled a flight and combined two, which is their classic trick. Uh, I hate them. God, I hate Americans. So I know, much. I know, I, hate I know them so much. You know, and, and here's the thing: 
And the only reason I defy them is because it's the one place I still have status. And status does matter. Like if you can get on the plane first, it does matter. But as soon as my status goes away, because I didn't travel much last year, um, I'm I'm changing because it's horrible. And I'm also changing because the only reason I really use it is because I have my, you know, American Airlines card, you know, my Visa card, but they just devalue my miles. Right, mm. I can't get a trip for twenty thousand anymore. It's forty or sixty or eighty. So they just devalue the currency. So I'm getting a Bitcoin Rewards credit card from our partners at, at Gemini, and uh, Tyler has promised me I'm going to get one. So I'm, I'm waiting, Tyler. So if you're listening, which you probably aren't, but uh, I, I know it's in the mail. But uh, get me my card. I need my rewards. <laughs> I had a, I had a, um, another, uh, poor of yours. Uh, so I don't know, do you remember Riley, uh, at Blockworks? Uh, he was one of our early employees, one of my best friends. Um, oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, he, uh, I saw him, I saw him this last weekend. Uh, he's got, he's got his BlockFi rewards card and we were at, we were at a bar and <laughs> he showed it to the bartender. She's like, I love that. I've got my BlockFi card. I'm all in on crypto. She's like, tell, I don't know. It was one of those like experiences. Uh, it was, awesome. it was just funny. Um, yeah. Awesome. No, no BlockFi is Block amazing, and and they're about to have this this massive moat uh, with the new registration for the BIA. And uh, again, full disclosure, one of our large investments. Uh, I had this experience, and I know we do have to wrap, but um, I I did an event up in New York a couple weeks ago, and uh, big crypto thing, and and they wanted me to interview Zach on kind of what happened with the SEC, and and Zach was on vacation with his kids, and and so. Uh, had Flory do it. And I told Zach the other day at a, at a board meeting, I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. I'm never talking to you again. I could talk to Flory all day. I, in fact, I could have interviewed Flory. We had a half hour. I could have interviewed her for the entire eight hours of the conference and not one person would have been unhappy. She mm-hmm. is laser sharp, so articulate. I mean, she's the best. And and the two yeah. of them, and and I, I, I actually just saw this last night. Um, Co-founder led businesses have higher um, returns than single founder investors. Now, I don't know know, how big that sample is, but, and it's because two heads are literally better than one. If it were, I honestly, Jason, if you're listening to this, I I am, whenever I listen now, when I hear about single founder led, I am aghast that anyone can do it. I'm I'm like, I don't know how. Anyone could possibly do it. Yeah. Uh, I like, yeah. I mean, Yano Yen, and I got pretty lucky that we're, we've got very complementary skill sets and, and get along. Uh, yeah, I don't know how. No, but and, and look, it, the only the only thing it does violate is is the rule that an investment committee should be an odd number and three is too many. Um, mm-hmm. Because how do you make decisions? But 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 it is good. The yin and yang is really important, and and when you have differentiated skill sets, uh, it is it is nirvana. So. Uh, you know, I think you guys are, are, are a perfect example of what I, I just said. And, uh, as are Zach and Flory and, and, and actually, you know, um, Mike Cagney and his wife, June are an example, uh, yeah. at, at another one of our portfolio companies figure. And I, it is not, I'm not shilling all our portfolio companies, but, um, they're the ones <laughs> I started, I started with block five, by the way. Yeah. I have a super high opinion of their team and their management yeah, team and their yeah, product great. as well. Like we're way over. We got, we got, I we know, got we got a wrap, but it's, it's. Look, it's, you know, it's another bloodbath day. My red pants are going to get. Uh. I mean, there's no respite anywhere. Like the 10 year is just continuing to push up. It, you know, broke, you know, 3% and it's like 3.1 now and still climbing. I mean, yeah, we'll see. You know, look, at the end of the day, too, I, I know it feels different and everything this time, but as long. <laughs> This too shall pass as well. And I will say, I, I haven't, this is not financial advice. Basically, if I'm buying, you should do the opposite of what I'm doing. But I, I have started to look at some stuff in crypto and been like, there are some great protocols companies that are getting, have been absolutely taken to the woodshed. And I don't know, uh, you know, no, th- this is look, what creates opportunities for investors. It, it, you're supposed to buy over time. Mm-hmm. Lower prices are good, right? Because- particularly for younger investors, the bulk of your investment will go in prospectively, not retrospectively. So you actually want on occasion corrections so you can, can increase your positions. And and look, you know, that is definitely going to happen. You know, the, the couple things that 
that could break here. You know, one is oil's back to almost 110. That has to go lower before the election. It will go lower before the election. And whether it's we go on bended knee to Saudi or, or but they're, they're going to engineer that because presidential popularity and gasoline prices are inversely correlated. So that, that's going to happen. The second thing is when VIX hits 36, again, it was with this guy yesterday, he says, I have a standing order. Just take the emotion out of it and just buy. Um, we're at 32.88 right this second. Uh, so that's getting close. Um, you're literally the, I, I wish, again, I wish I could show it. The, the 10 year yield is literally vertical. I mean, it's, I know it's I know. literally vertical and, I know. It's you know, crazy. I, I'm, I'm super excited that, you know, Top Gun 2 is coming out. I mean, Top Gun Great is reviews, greatest. Great Great review. Have you seen the early reviews for, no, the, I, for I, Maverick? See, here's the it's thing. Supposed to be good. Yeah, for Maverick. So here's the thing. Top Gun is the greatest movie ever. All other answers are wrong. And I and I don't care who you are. And it's just, it's just the best movie ever. And there are a lot of other movies I love. I'm a movie guy, but but it's just the best. And it's just, and this is just going to be epic. And I, I just can't wait. And so uh, you know, it's going vertical, Mav. Um, and, uh, sir, I was only below the hard deck for a few seconds. Commander. Yeah. Yeah. These are great. All right. Uh, we'll get you a cameo in that movie. Mark, we really got to wrap it up here. It has been, it has been fun. Jester's day. All right. right. So cheers, my uh, friend. Have a great weekend. And, uh, Hey, we didn't say the word sinister for sinister Saturday. No, we did not. No, we did not. I thought we kept it bound. I mean, yeah, I think, I think we did well. Um, I will see you same time next week. Cheers. Thanks, man. 